Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is founder and CEO of everyone's favorite music gear retailer, Sweetwater Sound. That's Chuck Shurek. First of all, Nielsen has come out with their half-year data. And what that is, is they look back at the recorded music business over the first half of the year. They put this report out every year, and I think it's pretty telling this year in particular because we had kind of a quarter of a year that was normal, and then we had a quarter of a year that was severely abnormal. So what does the data tell us? Well, as you would expect, audio streams are up by about 16% to $420 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B, $420 billion in the first half of the year alone. That being said, only three songs passed $500 million versus 12 last year, so we're listening to a lot more different types of music. As for market share, what I found interesting was indie recordings own 36% of the market. As for the major labels, Universal Music has 26%, Sony has 20%, and Warner Music Group has 16%. So that's not exactly what you'd expect. Indies really own the market at this point. Something else that I guess makes some sense, album sales are down. Album sales have been going down like a rock anyway, but COVID really pushed it over the edge, I think. They're down by 18%. Only 45 million albums were sold. Now, when you think about the billions of streams and then you look at the number of albums, and this is both analog and digital, boy, you can see how albums have really fallen by the wayside here. What I didn't expect was that CD sales are down by 30%. Now, considering that everyone has been spending a lot of money on Amazon, you'd think that they'd buy their favorite CDs there. No, not doing that. Now, before the pandemic, they were, and CD sales were going down, but at the same rate as they have been for the last five years. Then they just went off the cliff. Vinyl is up, however, 11%. Only 9 million, though. That's really a drop in the bucket. Billie Eilish, When We Fall Asleep, was the number one seller for the first half of the year, but only 85,000 copies. So it's nice to kind of rave that, wow, sales are up in vinyl and vinyl is doing so well, but in the grand scheme of things, it's hardly anything to the music business. When we look at the genres of music, there were a few that were up and a few that were down. Hip-hop, for instance, market share, 28%. Country's market share went up to 8.24%. Latin music went up. Children's music went up and world music went up. What went down? Rock music, Christian music, pop, and dance electronic. Those last two are kind of surprising because they've kind of owned the world at certain points over the last five or six years. But it's a different business now. It was turning into a different business pre-COVID And during COVID, it's changed again, and no doubt it's going to change some more in the future. But when we look at what's really going on in the recorded music business, we can see that it's a streaming world no matter which way you look at it. So it's best to embrace it because right now, there's no other way. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com 
forward slash free hyphen resources. Now comes the news from England that Korg, Roland, and GAK, the big UK music gear retailer, were fined the equivalent of about $7 million. Why? Well, they're violating something called resale price maintenance. What they try to do is set a minimum price for keyboards. Now, you can't actually do this, at least in the UK, because they feel that it's not healthy for competition. But Korg pushed this really hard and over the edge. The first thing they threatened to do was close the accounts of those retailers that didn't follow the price minimum that they set up. Second thing was that they're going to restrict access to the best products that Korg had. And finally, they're threatening to withhold financial support, which means more marketing than anything else. Now, Korg alone had to pay about $2 million in this, but they were the ones that were caught holding the goods because it turns out that there is a lot of emails that they're finding. And not only that, they tried to conceal evidence. So the UK government came down on them hard. We don't have that same thing in the United States. What we have is MAP, or Minimum Advertised Price. So what that means is there'll be a product that will come out, and let's say it's $2.99, and this suggested price will be everywhere. That doesn't mean that the retailer has to sell it at that price. It just means they have to advertise it at that price. You can't even do that in the UK. It's up to the retailer to set the price that they sell it at and that they advertise it at. So how this will affect Korg, not sure. Will heads roll on the executive level? Don't know. But nonetheless, this is a very severe slap in the behind for those companies. My guest this week is Chuck Shurak, who supplemented his playing career as a sax and keyboard player with the makeshift recording studio in the back of his Volkswagen bus. That mobile studio was a departure point for what was to become the largest online music retailer in the world, Sweetwater Sound. The company now ships over 3,300 guitars, 830 keyboards, 460 drum kits, and 5,300 microphones every single week from its facility in Fort Wayne, Indiana. As successful as Sweetwater is, what you probably don't know is that Chuck also owns a dozen other businesses in the area, including a luxury car dealership called Sweet Cars, private charter business companies Sweet Aviation and Sweet Helicopters, and the optical retailer Lounge Optical. In many of these cases, Chuck rescued the businesses from bankruptcy in order to save local jobs. During the interview, we talked about the surprising history of Sweetwater, the musical instrument business before and after the coronavirus, how the company finds high-quality employees, the difference between buying from Sweetwater and Amazon, and much more. I spoke with Chuck via Zoom from his office at Sweetwater just outside Fort Wayne. Let's go back to the beginning of Sweetwater. And again, I know you're tired of talking about this already, but there are a couple of interesting examples that frequently come up in the podcast that I think are exemplified by the whole story. So let's go back to the beginning. Sure. Um, You know, from a professional point of view, I was on the road as a musician right after high school. I play saxophone and keyboards. And I came home with uh, a beat-up VW bus, and that's all I had. My mom and dad gave me that VW bus when I was a junior in high school. 
And my mom had wrecked it. So I took the bus. I filled the front of it with two gallons of Bondo and I uh, painted it with 99 cent cans of blue spray paint from Kmart. And that's what I used on the road for several years as a saxophone player and a keyboard player. And after being on the road for several years with the bus and, you know, at that time we had a lot of nightclubs and, and places we could play six nights a week. So I played pretty full time for several years all over the country, almost every state in the continental U.S. And I was always the guy in the band that was technical. And so I ran the mixing board from the side of the room. But also back then, there weren't a lot of recording studios. And, and if they were, they were in Nashville or L.A. or New York. And, and uh, a lot of the radio stations is where you did your recording. And so I would go in to the local radio station, and they usually by then had an Ampex or a Scully 8-track. And, and we would record demos of the band that they would use for commercials for the nightclub we were playing or the restaurant. But we also could record some songs. And so I kind of developed myself into a recording engineer just by having access to the equipment that was at the radio stations. And after I'd done that for several years, um, decided I couldn't make any money on the road, you know, at the level of musician I was, and came home and started a recording studio out of that VW bus. And I would pull the bus alongside the church, the nightclub, the school, and I would run, you know, 200 feet of microphone cables in, mic up the band, the choir, the preacher, and I'd sit in the bus with my headphones and my TX3340 reel-to-reel tape recorder, and I would record those artists. And eventually, you know, moved to an eight track and then a 16 track. But I would take those recordings very humbly from my four track to my 12 by 55 mobile home. And that's where I would edit them and put some compression on them and sequence the songs and that sort of thing. And after doing that for a couple of years uh, in a mobile sort of situation, I finally bought my first house. Uh, I was in my early 20s at that point. First house on the west side of Fort Wayne. And uh, there I built a two-car garage and read all the books I could read about building recording studios. There weren't too many back then, but uh, I built as close of a studio as I could build. And the studio went from the 8-track and 16 to eventually a 24-track, 2-inch, and a big AMEC console and all that sort of stuff. But what really changed my business, 1983, I had a friend that owned a music store in town. And he said, would you like to go to the NAMM show in Chicago with me? And I said, what's NAMM? And he explained the National Association of Music Merchants and I went to the show and I got to see a prototype of the Kurzweil K250. And that was the first synthesizer that played back digital recordings of other instruments. And I thought, how cool is that? If I had something that could play back an upright bass or a 50 voice choir or a 45 piece string section, I could use that at the end of my recording sessions. I could offer more value to my customers. And so I quickly got pretty excited about it. And that machine was designed by Ray Kurzweil and his team of MIT folks. And it was a challenge from Stevie Wonder. Stevie wanted an instrument that could play back all the sounds of the orchestra. Anyway, I bought a very early one and uh, it just really changed the trajectory of my company and of my studio. I brought it to Fort Wayne and uh, started reverse engineering how it worked. Designed my own sounds for it. I wrote new computer software with a friend of mine. And before long, I was known as the guy that knew the Kurzweil K250, and I'm helping Stevie Wonder and Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton and Bob James and all these older artists today, but helping them with their K250s. And uh, it, it was just an amazing time. I was at the right place at the right time and designing lots of sounds, lots of software, lots of add-ons for that machine. And before long, I started selling them, and it was a, a nice side business to my recording studio business, but in some ways, it kept getting in the way of my studio business because I liked engineering, liked doing, playing on the sessions and all that. And, uh, but I started selling Kurzweil K250s, and, and a lot of those people I mentioned bought machines from me and didn't take long, and they were asking how to do music software on the computer. And I said, oh, I know how to do that. I'm doing that in my own studio. So I became a dealer for Total Music. And there was a program uh, from Mark the Unicorn way back then called Professional Composer, long before we had performer or digital performer. 
So I became a dealer for those, learned about MIDI. It progressed from there. They wanted to do recording. So I became a dealer for Tascam and Fostex equipment. And by 1990, my business had changed from being a recording studio to now I'm helping my friends around the country with their music and their recording equipment. I'll pause there for a second. I went really fast to try and explain the history. You said you had an AMEC recording console. Which one was it, just out of curiosity? Yeah, I had a couple of them. I had a, a Matchless, and I had a Magnum, and an Angela. It's three, I guess. Beautiful, beautiful consoles. I love the sound of the AMEC consoles. The reason why I ask is, where I met you was I was the sales manager for AMEC. Ah, wow. And you wanted to become a dealer, and the rep at the time brought me in to meet you. Wow. That's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. And when we left, I remember distinctly your idea was to do everything via mail order. Right. And after we left, I was talking to the rep, who I can't remember his name, but I was saying, the political fallout from this, I (laughs) I don't see how this could work because all my other dealers are going to go crazy. Yeah. So that was the number one thing back then, because you, your vision was to do everything remotely via mail order first. That was long before the internet, before the internet even. Yeah, right. How did you actually work that out with the manufacturers? Well, one manufacturer at a time. And <laughs> of course, the more the, the momentum was going, it was harder and harder for them to say no. But we had, in the early days, we had lots of discussions with manufacturers. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you, I had the... the uh, vision to, to see what Sweetwater would be today. But I did know, I've always known that I could take care of customers, whether they're in person or whether they're remote. And I did that starting with the big expensive Kurzweil instruments. You know, And if I could support a $20,000 to $40,000 instrument around the country like that, I knew I could support customers in any way. And uh, you know, I fast forward from that story and we moved into our first commercial building in 1990 with five employees. The next year, and that was a 5,000 square foot building, the next year, we added on another 10,000 square feet. We added 20 more employees, and we were at that address for 17 years. And before we moved out in 2006, we had 200 employees and 50,000 square feet. I mean, I could have never envisioned that for my VW bus. Again, that was, that was uh, 2006. Fast forward to today in 2020, and, and we've got 1,800 employees, 900,000 square feet. We're on 163 acres. But I say all that, and, and I don't mean that in any way boastful or arrogant or anything like that. I still look at each and every customer, each and every transaction. We happen to be selling music equipment, but what we're really doing is fulfilling dreams and helping people get there. And that's what we're focused on. It's a customer one, one at a time. I was a speaker at the last two gear fests. So I saw your campus and I saw everything firsthand. And I have to say, to say it's impressive is it doesn't do it justice. But what I found even more impressive that goes to your point was the fact that I saw you out there greeting customers as they were coming in to GearFest. I love love doing that. I've done that now for the last five years or so. And I stand at the front door both days, almost all day. And we see customers literally from all around the world. And I'm humbled that they find their way to Fort Wayne, Indiana, from New Zealand, from Europe, from Pacific Rim, and of course, all over the United States. All 50 states are represented and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun for two days just to meet customers and say thank you. And a lot of them want to tell me stories, how long they've been doing business with us or what they do. But I'm just totally humbled by that. I'm disappointed that this year we're not going to get a chance to do that. Yeah, too bad. But I'm sure they feel the same way, getting talked directly to you. So it goes both ways. It does. It's very, very cool. Let's talk about the Kurzweil adventure for a second because 
it didn't seem like you were technical, and then all of a sudden you were getting deep into the programming. Yeah, well, I've always been technical. Being in Fort Wayne, Indiana, you had to learn how to fix your own mixing console and align your own tape recorders and all those sorts of things. And I've taught myself how to do virtually everything. Uh, I'm one of the few people in our world that have not, frankly, had further education. Uh, not that I'm uneducated. I learned different ways. But I taught myself electronics. I taught myself how to do accounting. I've done virtually every job in our company. did a lot of computer programming for many, many years. Um, but stuff comes to me pretty easily. And uh, reverse engineering the curves, well, it started at first just recording my own sounds for it because I'd been a recording engineer for many years. I'd used lots of other software already. And so the idea of recording individual notes and looping them and mapping them across the keyboard was pretty straightforward to me. Uh, I'd written computer code to, to run my recording studio. Back in the old days when we did uh, lots of cassettes, you had to label 50 or 100 cassettes. And I wasn't going to sit there at a typewriter and do it. So I wrote programs in BASIC that would spit out 50 labels. I wrote accounting programs so I could build my customers. And all that gave me the background to understand how the Kurzweil K250 worked. And like I say, I started with sounds. Uh, and then I started doing more code that went in it. I turned my sounds into sounds that were not just on floppy disks, but were on EPROMs. And so you could actually load the actual ROMs in your machine and you just turn the machine on, it would load up automatically. And uh, I, I had the two line display of the, the Kurzweil actually read out to the Macintosh. They had a 68,000 processor chip in it, the same as the early Macs. And with a serial cable, you could talk to the Macintosh and there was a program on the Mac back then called Macintalk. And so whatever the two-line display did in the, in the Kurzweil, the Mac would read it out loud. And it was pretty funny to hear the sequencer go, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But it was, it was fascinating, and it was, it was uh, enabling for people with, with uh, little sight or limited sight. And so I sold a lot of Kurzweils to, to folks that were, were hard to see, and partly because that was the design criteria that Stevie did. He wanted lots of tactile buttons, not lots of deep menus, and the combination of his tactile, lots of buttons across the front of it, and my making the screen actually talk out loud, it just made it so much easier for blind people to use the machine. Now, going from being a player and an engineer into retail is a different mindset. And yes, it's true that I think everybody in the music business is built-in multitasking, so you know that's given. But nonetheless, it's a different mindset. So how did you find that in terms of well, this is what I did, and I really love it, and now I'm doing something else. Were you conflicted at all? The only conflicting part was I really love the music and producing the music and recording it. And as I got more and more into the business world, and now I'm dealing with employees and some of the not always fun stuff for the business, I missed the music part. And I had to force myself to go back and find ways to keep doing music because that's why I got started. But if I go back further... I've always been entrepreneurially driven. Uh, I was five years old. I had my first business. I was making potholders where you put the little loops across the frame and go around the outside. Well, I grew up in a little town in Southern Ohio. I know you came from Southern Pennsylvania, but we had, we had 5,000 people in our town, about the same as your hometown. And I sold over 10,000 potholders to my town of 5,000 people. Huh. Sometimes grandma bought 10 or 12 of them, but you know, I had many neighbors that bought, I sold a lot of potholders. And then I had a newspaper route. Most of my friends had 40 or 50 papers. I had 330. I figured out if you delivered to apartment complexes and the senior citizens, you could deliver much faster. And everything I did, I kind of did to extremes. And probably what really set me up was Boy Scouts. And Boy Scouts maybe aren't as popular today as they were back then, but a Boy Scout learns to treat people well, 
treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And, and Boy Scouts, uh, one of the laws is Boy Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, clean, brave, and reverent. Uh, those are amazing principles to live by personally, but I think they're also amazing principles to live by professionally. And that's, I don't make all my employees learn them, but they all hear them out of me. I make every employee in the second hour they're here to hear me talk about the Boy Scout laws. And if there's ever an issue about how to handle something, just think about trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, so on and so forth. So back to your question specifically, you know, you know, I had to learn how to be in the retail business, but I never really thought of it as that. I'm not particularly driven. You know, it's kind of hard for a, a business guy to say today. I'm not particularly driven by the money. I just wanted to do the right thing, take care of my friends. And that's what I really felt like I was doing, just taking care of my friends. And frankly, if I did that, the money sort, sort of takes care of itself. But I never got into it for the money part. You mentioned employees a minute ago. And one of the things that has always impressed me was the fact that you get very high quality employees. These are people that for the most part, they were working at other places doing very impressive levels of work. And you managed to attract them to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which in itself I think is impressive. But the fact of the matter is, it's the level of person that you get. How do you make that happen? Boy, Bobby, that is a great observation. And I got to tell you, I am personally humbled every day and I'm inspired every day. I'm here early because of the level of employees. We have folks with their doctorates, their Grammy Award winners, Dove Award winners, just really, really good people. And I'm just thankful and blessed. But how do we do it? Um, it gets easier as the company gets more and more well-known and you have this staff of great people. People are aspiring to want to be here, um, but it's treating folks correctly. I, I firmly believe if I don't te- treat my employees well, how in the world would I expect them to treat our customers? And so that's the first thing, just a matter of mutual respect. Uh, I would never ask an employee to do anything that I wouldn't do. In fact, for the last four weeks, I've been out in our warehouse packing boxes. And uh, I just firmly believe that we all should have practice servant leadership and should be willing to do anything and everything for each other and for our customers. But we screen employees really hard. Um, We make them go through a pretty extensive interview process. And then, of course, they come out to our campus, and that's a little different than probably anywhere else in the country, and that helps attract people. And then the big thing is I just tell everyone, you're either adding credibility or taking credibility away from our company. And we want you to add credibility. And if you're adding credibility, you'll do great here, and you're going to be inspired like I am, and you'll enjoy being around so many smart people and good people and all that. If you don't add credibility, you know, maybe don't always tell the truth or just stretch the rules a little bit you're not going to stay here very long. You know, the other employees will chase you out because we don't want to risk the reputation that we've worked so hard for for so long. And I am just incredibly thankful for the great employees. And we get letters every day of every week. I'm not exaggerating. Emails and letters, probably 100 to 300 on most days of customers raving about their experience with the sales engineers or the tech support people. And and I just smile every time I read them. We're not perfect. We make mistakes, but man, oh man, we, we handle them really well. You know, there's only one other company that I've personally been involved with that I can say had the same level of people involved, of employees. That was lynda.com. And I did a number of courses for them. And in the beginning, I'd have to actually go to their campus and do everything there, which is near Santa Barbara here. And I was always impressed. And eventually, I got to meet Linda and the CEO and, and whatever. And I'd say, the one thing that really impresses me is the fact that there's no jerks in your company. <laughs> Using something more colorful, actually, but the fact of the matter is, everybody was a pleasure to work with, which is so highly unusual. And it's the same thing in your company. Every one of them has been great. And I've talked to a number of them at a wide variety of levels. 
I hear that all the time from our guests in our building and and it's hard to not become jaded about it because I'm around them every day, but uh, people tease me all the time. Is it the water you give them or is it Kool-Aid? What are you doing? You know, because I do hear that a lot. I'm blessed. I'm thankful. Okay. Speaking of sales engineers, well, we weren't speaking of it, but employees, sales engineers. So I read something somewhere. It might've been an interview that you did where you were saying that you were doing X amount of sales every day, but the fact of the matter is a lot of those sales are coming from direct contact from your sales engineers. That really impressed me because I always thought that it was just people getting online and doing business with you, but I guess it's not. Yeah, it's a combination. You know, I don't think anyone supersedes the other. I mean, clearly we get a lot of business, especially over the last couple of months directly online, but we really, our goal, our goal is our sales engineers will have a one-on-one relationship with each and every one of our customers. I want to know what the customer is doing, but we also want to know their dreams and their aspirations and what equipment they have. And frankly, quite often we're trying to get spouse's name and children's name and having a relationship. And, uh, I believe, and that's a model that's different than virtually all of our competitors. It's a little bit old school, and and I like thinking that way. It's the way pro audio might have been back in the 60s and 70s, just as I was starting. Um, And and so the sales engineer, and and we call them sales engineers because most of them do have an engineering degree or background, many years of playing, um, and, and very experienced when they come here. And then we put them through Sweetwater University. And Sweetwater University is 13 weeks, eight hours a day, taught by about 300 different, uh, uh, 300 classes taught by about 80 different teachers before they're ever allowed to talk to a customer. Back to that thing where I think they all need to add value to the conversation or to our relationship or our brand, not take value away. And so we don't let them talk to a customer until they've been here long enough that we know they're going to add value and be of the sweet water quality. But once they do, they start developing relationships with these end users. And uh, it's just a great, great model how it works. And, you know, there's new stuff coming out all the day and all the time. And even with someone highly educated, maybe an electrical engineering degree, that sort of thing, that doesn't mean they're on top of the latest trends or the latest technology or gear that's coming out. And that's what our folks do every day and make good recommendations. And my people know, and I, I know this will sound silly, but they're trained to do the right thing for the customer because we're looking at long term, not one quick transaction. And if that means selling the customer a less expensive thing or teaching them how to use what they have, that's the right long-term answer. And that's what I would rather do before we just oversell somebody. Now, by the same token, when we sell somebody something, I want to sell them all the right stuff. It would do them no good to sell them an expensive keyboard and not talk about how they're going to play it back or record it or to give them the right cables or a stand or a music bench. But I want to make sure when the customer opens the package, whatever it is, that out of the box, it's going to be a great experience. It's going to be a turnkey solution that works. So that being said, that's the big differentiator between Sweetwater and Amazon, for instance. And it's so difficult to go up against Amazon, but you're doing it quite successfully because you're growing every year. Yeah, that's a great point. You hit it right on the head. And and, and I don't mean this boastful or arrogant, but there's about 5,000 music stores across the country. And some of them are run really, really well. And I have a lot of respect for them. As you can imagine, like most businesses, a lot of them are not run very well. And They've got minimum wage employees and, and they can't have the, the variety of, of inventory. You know, today we represent about 60,000 products from nearly 2,000 different vendors. And it's just hard for a local store to compete today. Amazon, on the other hand, is amazing at what they do. It used to be two-day delivery and then it got to one day and two hours and on a drone. And I guess now you go pick it up at their stores. Other than the last few weeks, they've slowed down a little bit. 
but you can't call Amazon and go, how do I use my Apple computer with Mark Unicorn software with a DigiDesign interface and I wanna plug my Gibson Les Paul into it. You're just not gonna call Amazon and, and get that sort of advice. And I don't believe their computer algorithms are ever going to be able to figure out the millions and millions and millions of combinations of equipment there are. And that's why our sales engineers can work with the customer and consult and figure out the right thing. And we just fit neatly between those 5,000 music stores and Amazon, where we have the economy of scale working for us. We represent all those brands. We've got sales engineers that can walk you through what's perfect for your system, which is different than everybody else's system in the world. And because of all that, we've been growing just dramatically fast, you know, and uh, usually about 20% a year, and we're competing very well against Amazon. Now, I understand during COVID that sales have actually increased. I'm actually uh, embarrassed to tell people this because I know so much of the world is suffering and I have friends and business owners that are just, it's tough. Um, that being said, the state of Indiana, our governor allowed, in fact, encouraged distribution centers to be open. And we were able to find staff to keep our warehouse open. And we have had literally Black Friday, Cyber Monday sort of sales, more than double what we normally do this time of year. And it's everything we can do to keep up, but we're absolutely doing our best to keep up. And again, I, I don't mean it in any sort of arrogant sort of way. I really feel for the folks that are struggling, but we were just fortunate to be in the state of Indiana while many of our competitors across the country had to shut down. Even Amazon uh, for a while was quoting three to four weeks delivery time on music gear because they were working on more essential items to ship. Uh, we've been able to ship most everything in just a day or two like we've always done. Yeah, people are definitely at home ordering online. We'll, we'll see as we start to open up a little bit if that'll slow down. But I'll tell you what, it was fun to watch because I say I was out in the warehouse packing almost every day. And you could absolutely just see as the items came across the table as I packed them, oh, this guy's completely refurbing his guitar. He bought polish for the fretboard. He bought new strings. He bought some new tuners. You know, and the next order to go, oh, this guy's setting up to do podcasts because he bought the podcast microphone and the earphones and, you know, and the, the computer interface. We sold lots of audio interfaces. We were selling interfaces just hundreds and hundreds every day. It was unbelievable. And, of course, that follows through with all the music we've seen online and all the things that are going on on Facebook Live or YouTube and all that. But it was just fun to watch it go out our door and then see it be used just a few days later. Now, that being said, you're subject to the supply chain as well. We are. Were you having trouble getting that product in order to sell? Yes and no. And I'm sorry for the complicated answer, but we were fortunate to have a little bit of a perfect storm. We started over a year ago to build a brand new half a million square foot distribution center. And believe it or not, it went online the third week of February of this year. And we anticipated, we saw what was coming from China and around the world with this virus and we knew we had this big half a million square foot warehouse. So back in January, we started going to our vendors, especially the ones that come from the Orient and all that, and said, we want to buy everything we can buy out of your chain, out of your factories. And we got a lot of inventory in late February and very early March. Now, that being said, we still have run out of things because we just have, we're selling two and three times what we were used to selling. But because we had the new warehouse, we ordered three and four months worth of inventory some products, of course, were made in the U.S., and we can continue to get those if the company's still allowed to be in business and so on and so forth. Um, what I would say is that definitely there's items that we're short on. There are a couple companies now that have gone out of business already permanently, hmm. so we'll never get items from them. But there's also a lot of companies that are able to supply, and we were able to fill our warehouse, and so it's a mixed bag. The good thing today, if you wanted interface A or interface B, there's so many people that make audio interfaces. I can probably recommend another interface 
that's a lot different than from when you and I started and there was only one or two choices. Yeah. Today, there must be 50 different interfaces for $100 or something. Now, what is not selling that usually does? Uh, I don't know. That's a great question. I've not really researched that. I, I will tell you that it's more low-end items. And you know, that being said, we're still selling custom guitars and, and expensive keyboards, but the, the average order size has gotten smaller. More people are buying that podcast setup or tools to... New, I, I did an order last night and a guy bought six different drum heads, six pair of drum sticks and a, a thing to go on his kick drum. To, I mean, I could tell he's going to refurb his whole drum set. Um, I assume the bigger things are not selling, but I've not really figured that out for sure. Okay. What do you see post COVID in terms of how the industry, the musical instrument industry that you're in, how is that going to be affected? I guess the first question is what is post COVID? You know, I don't know when that will be and what that's going to look like. None of us do. It is changing quickly. You know, our governor just on Friday slightly opened up our state. And it was interesting to see people were tired of being pent up. And, and even though the risk is there, man, oh, man, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, they're out on the streets. There's more cars driving. Places were busy and all that sort of thing. Um, that being said, even more so than the music year, if you think about our professional musicians, and I'm friends with lots of them, and they just have no idea no idea when they're going to go on tour or when they can be three feet away from each other in a recording studio. And, you know, I've heard everything from this fall to next year to I heard even as long as 2022. And so that will drive a lot of equipment sales. That'll drive a lot of the manufacturers, whether they can stay in business, the guys that are making live sound speakers and live sound amplifiers, they're going to struggle for a little bit. And I don't know. All that being said, I also know how resilient we are as a country and I think just the seven or eight weeks we were tied down at home and how fast people are trying to get back out. I'm not sure how much we're going to be able to hold them back. You know, and churches and big facilities are going to want to open concert facilities are going to want to open. I think probably the better way to look at it. And again, I don't know what big concerts are going to look like, but I do think if you look at all the online stuff, I have personally listened to more music in the last eight weeks with home videos and, and videos on Zoom where bands are together virtually and orchestras are together and people, some people I've never heard of that are actually really, really good. I think this will be another, the same way when home recording took off, I think this is going to be another chapter uh, where maybe it's out of the control of the record label's hands a little bit and more in the hands of the musicians. And so that in some ways enthuses me to see what comes of this because there's been a lot of creativity over the last eight weeks or so. Yeah, yeah, I agree. One of the things that really impressed me at GearFest was the fact that I was exposed to something Sweetwater Connect that I never knew about, and that's sweet cars, sweet helicopters, the uh, optical company, aviation insurance. But now when I looked a little bit more into it, it seems that you bought these companies to keep people working and to keep things going, which is so noble, it's unbelievable. You're very perceptive. You're a good reporter. Uh, almost, almost every one of those, uh, that was exactly the story. Uh, there's an individual story about all the companies, but they were all about to go out of business. They typically employed 20 to 60 employees. And I knew in every one of those cases that I could get involved and apply the same good customer servicing techniques, apply a little marketing, some business skills that I felt I could turn them around. And, and I think that's one of my roles as a leader in our community today to keep as many jobs going as I can. And I'm very thankful. Some of those now are seven, eight years old. Every one of them has been successful. I think there's 14 or 15 businesses now. It sounds silly that I don't know how many, but it's about 14 or 15. Um, they're all doing two, three, four times the business from when I bought them. They're all very, very successful. And 
they're in lots of different industries, as you've said, but what is common to all of them is just always, always, always do the right thing for the customer. And every one of my companies, all the managers know that. They know what the Sweetwater way is, and they're either going to add credibility to that sweet brand or they'll take credibility away. And they won't take credibility away very long before they won't be there. Uh, but that's really the story of all of it. It's all about jobs. You hit it right on the head. Congratulations on that. That approach is quite noble. And I wish it were taken more by people that were able to. Well, my feeling is that I've been very blessed, very successful, and, and we love giving back to our community. We give back all over the country. Um, I could have never, ever dream to have a life like I'm able to have today. And I also know I can't take it with me. You know, I, you don't see many U-Hauls at, at the cemeteries. So I just want to give back and encourage others and, and, and hope that other people become successful. Last question, Chuck. And thank you so much for your time. I quite enjoyed this. Uh, I was hoping that one day soon we would meet. I was thinking it would probably be at a gear fest, but this is better. What is the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? You know, I don't know if it's business advice as much as I would say it's people advice. And, and I believe I'm in a people business. All my businesses are people businesses. And uh, what I would say is just always be kind, always try and give back, always try and help others. I'm not saying you give stuff away for free because then there's no value to it. I'm not suggesting that, but we don't know what's going on in someone else's life. And I just always try and, uh, uh, take on the world in, in a more positive way. And I think all of us, anyone that's listening to this podcast, um, we're all blessed. You know, we probably have a roof over our head, probably get three meals a day, have a car or two or more. And not everybody's in that situation. We could be one step away from being in a, in a bad situation. And I just encourage others that have been successful in any way, shape or form to give back, to encourage, uh, to turn the other cheek. You just don't know what's going on in someone's life right now. And, and it may be things that are out of their control. And so I'm just always looking for the good in people, not the bad in people. You can find out more about Chuck and a whole lot about Sweetwater and some of the great products they represent at sweetwater.com, sweetwater, all one word.com. But you probably knew that already. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or Go to bobbyownercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby Osinski.